Investors around the world are on high alert, still digesting the news of several high-profile bank failures and what the implications of their demise may be for everything from interest rates to credit availability. While the public market reaction in the form of increased volatility, especially in the shares of banks, has been clear, what's less obvious is how this crisis is already impacting private markets. We think you're going to see lots of opportunities to help these banks uh, selectively pair risk on their balance sheet. That can come in lots of ways, and we can choose how we want to do that. I think that you'll see some of these banks pulling back in different areas. You'll see some pulling back in real estate, some pulling back in direct lending, some pulling back in consumer lending, some all three. But either way, um, we are going to have opportunities to participate in that. That was John McNichols, head of private multi-asset investing at Barings. And this is Streaming Income a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, exploring three private market opportunities amidst a backdrop of volatility. All right, John McNichols, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, excited to have you here. Uh, Believe it or not, it's been a year since you were last on Streaming Income. Uh, I look back at our uh, last conversation, and we were talking about some things that I think are still concerns today. So we were talking then about what the impact of rising rates would look like, what the impact of inflation would look like. Um, we're, of course, a little bit further along now in terms of both of those uh, cycles and kind of where we're at. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear your, your comments there. But today we're going to be talking a little bit about this most recent crisis that we've seen in the banking sector and then how that's kind of filtering through to private markets in terms of threats, opportunities, et cetera. So, but maybe before we dive into that, uh, if listeners have not heard our prior conversations or you know read any of your work or anything like that, um, would you mind just describing uh, your role here at Bearings in your investment universe that you look at? Well, my role has three parts. First part, maybe the part I spend the most time at, is managing multi-asset private portfolios. These are investment accounts in which our clients have given us mandates to invest across a predetermined set of private asset classes. And to, to kind of get to the last part of your question, that range goes from direct lending to private placements and infrastructure, private asset-backed and private residential finance, uh, commercial mortgage loans, uh, even into less liquid parts of the liquid or public universe, things like CLOs uh, can be a part of our mandate. So that's generally the the framework I work within. And then the other two aspects of the job are, uh, one, serving as point person for the creation and dissemination of opinions on relative value across private markets. And then the third piece is is essentially commercializing our business around multi-asset private. You know, bearings like most firms has seen a lot of growth in our private business. Much of that growth has come through single strategy accounts. Somebody will hire us for direct lending, they'll hire us to do infra, they'll hire us to do CMLs. And so a a part of my role is commercializing the uh, growth of the business in which we're doing multiple asset classes for clients and portfolios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've you got, uh, you know, as broad of a view as anyone, certainly at this firm, I would say, in terms of, you know, where that relative value uh, exists across, especially all of these private asset classes, but as you said, and, you know, in, into the public markets in some um, places as well. So I think we have the right person for this uh, conversation. And I want to dive into, you know, where you're seeing relative value, but maybe before we get 
uh, into that. Let's just talk a little bit about this banking crisis that we've seen. So it seemingly kind of came out of nowhere, you know, a few weeks or a month ago. Obviously garnered a ton of headlines, uh, really put investors on high alert uh, in terms of looking at potential risk exposures that they have across their portfolios. So um, I'd be interested to hear, you know, you you know, tell us a little bit about, about how you kind of reacted to that. And then, you know, I think it's easy for folks to look at their Bloomberg screens and see the, you know, prices of public market assets moving around. Obviously, we've seen a lot of volatility in bank shares in particular, um, but it's it's less obvious kind of what's necessarily happening in private markets. So be interested just to hear your overall take on the crisis so far and the implications for private markets. Good question. So, you know, when the when news first started breaking, you know, the important thing, the first thing one has to do is try to understand how bad things could get, right? What's the extent of the problem? Because ultimately all of this affects private markets. The supply of capital and banks are major suppliers of capital into the market is a is one half of the equation, right? The demand for capital is one half, the supply of capital is the other hand, banks are big suppliers of capital. And so, uh, you know, we have a, a pretty strong group of economic and, and financial services researchers here at Barings. And uh, there were a lot of conversations, calls on the weekend, trying to understand what, what is the problem and how deeply could it spread? Our assessment was that it was gonna take a while to play out. In the long run, was probably gonna prove to be somewhat contained in that the banks where we saw immediate crisis were banks that had unusual business models and or unusual deposit bases, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic Bank are, mm -hmm. are not the kind of banks most Americans do business with. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they can't cause systemic problems, but they represent a each in their own way a niche financial institution which shared some problems related to asset and liability matching. But that at the end of the day, uh, you know, the big U.S. banks, the top tier banks were probably fine and that the majority of the regional banks were probably going to be OK. But that it would take a while to find out. Mm -hmm. and, and what will happen, I think, in the end are that you know, all banks will wind up taking less risk than they otherwise would have taken mm. because of this. Okay. Uh, banks tend to anticipate what regulators subsequently tell them to do. Mm. And so uh, I think it's unrealistic and probably appropriate for regulators to take a look at this and come back with some recommendations on how banks should deal with these kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. It's uh, just as expected, I think, for banks to take the bull by the horns and try to do the right thing early. And so I, I do think you'll see banks taking less risk than they otherwise would have taken so there will be less capital at work in many of the markets where we traffic, whether that's commercial loans, direct lending, uh, infrastructure debt, that kind of thing. I will say, importantly, although the CS acquisition by UBS is an important global action vis-a-vis -vis bank stability and certainly European banking health, overall, European banks are in much better shape than U.S. banks. And so part of my, you know, we talked about the range of asset classes um, that I look at. We also look at asset classes around the world in private markets. And you know, Europe has its own set of problems in some ways more acute than the U.S. This is one that I think will affect them less. Mm. I think that the European banks were in better shape. The overall European banking sector is not going to uh, react to this in a meaningful way, in my opinion. Now, that said, they were already pulling back on risk. Uh, we have seen opportunities to... Uh, engage with banks in risk reduction trades already, even in the second half of last year. So that, that's been going on for a while. But they're in great shape. From an economic perspective, 
um, central banks around the world are tightening. Uh, the U.S. is probably a couple quarters ahead of everybody else. Um, given the dynamism in the U.S. economy, it's my view that the sensitivity of the economy to Fed action is higher than that in Europe. We've anniversaried the one-year uh, point for U.S. Uh, rate increases. I think you'll start seeing that feed through. I think growth is going to be lower through the year. You and I have had this conversation before. I am not especially worried that this economic slowdown will produce a very significant credit cycle mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. I think growth may go negative for a quarter or two. It may not. Um, I think the consensus, frankly, is that it doesn't go. I think right now, if you look at consensus growth expectations, we kind of get to zero about wintertime and then kind of come up. But the, the variable here that I think is important to keep in mind is that debtor entities, be they companies, individuals, or governments, traffic in nominal dollars, not inflation-adjusted right, dollars. Right, right. And, and we, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, I don't see any situation in which nominal GDP falls below 3 or 4% growth year on year. And I think that's enough to keep, in general, a lot of debt-laden companies and individuals afloat. Yep. You look back to the uh, one of the greatest examples I can find is back in the early 70s when inflation was or mid to late 70s, when inflation was really high in the U.S., we had three or four years when there were zero corporate defaults because inflation helps debtors, plain and simple, mm. right? Mm. Um, whether you're a government, whether you're a company, whether you're a person. And so I think the, the scenario to, to, to really be wary of is one in which inflation falls very fast and we kind of get really much lower inflation at the same time as growth is hitting zero or going negative. In that case, you could have some problems, but otherwise I think we'll be able to, to, to maneuver okay. pretty well. Okay, that's a great overview. So um, to sum up sort of slower growth, but you're not predicting a, a material recession um, on the horizon in the near future, at least in terms of you know, what you're seeing and the, what, the, what the teams around bearings are seeing. Overall, yeah. obviously, there will be parts of the economy that are more effective. Uh, if you own an office building right now, you're not feeling very good about the world. Of course, right? yep. Um, if you own an over-levered company in a business in which you don't have pricing power, but your costs are going up, you are not happy about the world right mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. But in the aggregate overall, and, and one of the nice things about a broad global multi-asset portfolio is that presumably you can get access to this broad risk, I think it's going to be uh, okay. Okay. There's heightened risks, I guess, in, in certain parts of the economy, but there are, you know, where there is volatility, there is also, you know, opportunity. We very obviously think about that in public markets where we see the prices of different securities become stressed or distressed, and that, that represents potentially, you know, obvious opportunities. It can be less obvious in private markets. So um, as I was asking you to prepare for this conversation, I, I, I challenged you to offer uh, me three areas of opportunities that you're seeing in private assets um, right now. So if you're game for it, I'd love to dive into those. So um, let, let's start with the first one. Where, where are you seeing the, the, your first opportunity in private markets today? Well, so the first one I'd mention is one that I know you've heard before from others here, particularly on the CML side, and that's uh, U.S. construction loans. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the way the commercial construction market works or the commercial real estate market works is property owners will uh, either own a piece of land, acquire a piece of land, they'll permit that up, they'll develop plans for a building, and in the course of that, they'll invest a ton of their own money. Then what they do is they go out and they borrow money to finance, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60% of the total value of the property based upon 
whatever lending conditions they can find. Mm -hmm. There are some really large ones, but the majority of these loans fall between, say, $30 million in size and, let's say, $80 to $90 million in size. Okay. Uh, that's very unscientific. You know, I, I go through the IC and I see the deals we bring, and this is sort of the, the general uh, wheelhouse for the size. Yep. A big part of the permanent financing for these properties is insurance companies and other long-term investors. The biggest providers of capital for the construction of these buildings is actually the regional banks. Mm -hmm. These same regional banks, which we spoke about a few minutes ago, who are in risk reduction mode mm -hmm. because of the asset liability management on their balance sheet. That's going to leave a big gap and a big opportunity for investors uh, who can tolerate the structural, I'll call it inefficiencies of that market. If you do a, a $50 million construction loan, the money kind of goes out gradually over two, three years as the building is built. And then it gets paid down when it gets to be $50 million as they get permanent financing. Sometimes it's outstanding for a year or a little more, but it's not going to be outstanding forever. And so it has an inefficient footprint for a lot of long-term lenders who would rather have their money invested for the full amount invested for a long period of time. That's the most appealing structure. But if you can tolerate this structure, what we found today that for really A-quality properties in multifamily retail, you know, not, not office, top-level top hospitality industrial properties, financed with less than 50% debt, and the basis in the land is also often very low because it's been owned for a while by these equity sponsors. Um, and you can identify, you can find opportunities with coupons of upwards of eight or 900 basis points with a couple points upfront fee and then a funding fee on top of that. And you can pretty easily get to, presuming they get taken out after three years, you know, IRRs of roughly 13 to 15% on some of these deals. Mm. And to me, on a risk-adjusted basis, that is as good an opportunity as you can find today. Now, is that – so I, I think we've discussed that once or twice with uh, Nasir Alamir yeah. from our real estate debt team and should probably mention that, you know, given your role kind of, you know, being able to look across bearings and you kind of benefit from, you know, being able to interact with all of these teams and kind of see what they're seeing. And so one thing that we've, uh, you know, I think talked about with Nasir a little bit, I'd be interested to get your take on is – is that a pretty um, counterintuitive or non-consensus idea given where we are in the economic cycle? I mean, you said you're not expecting necessarily that we're heading off a cliff economically, um, but I think most people are looking at, you know, a year's worth of interest rate hikes. You know, there's layoffs happening in different parts of the economy. Uh, potentially we're heading for a recession. So is it a strange time to be, you know, allocating toward construction loans heading toward a recession? I think you really want to be careful with property type mm. um, and property location. You don't want to just, you know, go out and make loans against any property in any location. Unemployment's sub 3%, right? Or 3%. Uh, if unemployment goes up, we're still going to be in an economy that probably needs workers. Mm -hmm. Consumers have built up Lots of cash, like cash cushions, but you know, from all the COVID payments and just generally, if you speak of the increase in savings, that has come down, but it's not gone yet. I feel pretty good that consumers will again overall weather the coming downturn pretty effectively. And I think what really makes this stand out, though, is the fact that you know historically these kinds of risks. If you look at the pricing for a stabilized property, not a property that you're building, but one that's fully leased, same quality, in a great location. Uh, spreads on that are still sub 200. So there you're financing 60%. So you're, you're financing more, still pretty good loan to value, could be more, 60, 65%. But it's already performing at sort of full uh, cash flow level, covering interest a certain amount of time. You're gonna, but you're going to get paid less than 200 basis points in spread for that mortgage. And it's going to be probably a 20-year amortization and a 10-year kind of 
bullet payment at the end. Mm. So much longer, better efficiency because you'll have more capital working for more more time. But the difference in value is just stark, in my opinion. Mm. You know, that sort mm. of potentially 10, 12% difference in value between the construction. And construction does present risk, right? Until you get that building built and leased, yep. Uh, yep. you have risk. Yep. But if you can finance the right property in the right location, I think that's pretty modest risk. Um, and again, don't don't buy an office building in the middle of New York City. Yeah. Right? If you're talking about you know a, a new hotel in the best neighborhood in Denver, mm-hmm. a retail residential complex in a great location in uh, Atlanta or Miami, uh, these are eminently financeable properties, and and that rate is just very high. And and frankly, if we didn't have the banks pulling out, I suspect, you know, ordinarily those would be sub 10% kind of loans. Mm-hmm. They'd be sort of 8 9%. And so I think you're picking up, and, and I would defer to Nasir on that, he would be able to get more, more precise, but I think you're picking up a lot of extra money compared to some of the other areas we'll talk about in a sec. For instance, my second one was going to be European direct lending. Mm. I think based upon the changing economic outlook for, the, for Europe vis-a-vis the US, I think a year ago, uh, European uh, economic fortunes looked to be much more negative. Uh, you had much closer proximity to the energy shock. You had the, the war uh, situation. You had um, you have much higher inflation as a result. You have economies which are just inherently less dynamic and less productive. I think it looked pretty dire then. Today, you know, gas prices are back to where they were when Russia invaded Ukraine. We're close to. We're not too far off where we were pre-COVID. Inflation remains high, but. The central banks there uh, are, are a couple quarters behind, at least the U.S. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think economists will tell you is that because the economies are more regulated and less dynamic, they respond with a less sensitivity to central banks. And so as the central banks raise rates, it's going to be a longer, more drawn out process. And, you know, the growth there is never going to get to three, four percent like it can get in the US. But at the same time, I think the risk of a, of a recession there is pretty modest too. Yeah. And so uh, I happen to like European direct lending. Um, there you can find you know uh, deals that are attractively levered, um, spreads probably in the seven to 800 basis point range on top of base rates that are three, three and a half percent, more than that on a forward looking basis if you lose the forward curves, which is very cheap. But if you look at it relative to, say, broadly syndicated loans in Europe or relative to historical spreads in direct lending, it doesn't have the same level of cheapness to itself and to its competitor products as the construction loan does, yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. Got it. But we also like it because uh, the European companies tend to be levered. All things equal tend to be levered a little less. Mm-hmm. Um, you tend to get paid a little more for per turn of leverage. The track record of defaults and, and so forth in Europe and our direct lending business and our competitors, for that matter, is just pretty good. It's pretty low. So U.S. construction lending, somewhat of a non-consensus call. And I think based on some conversations with uh, our colleague Nasir and, and that team, I, I think to your point, sector selection matters you know, dramatically there. And then you know, I think the other point that he's made uh, to me before is that just around the timing of some of these. So a lot of times it's it, the timing of making a loan heading into an economic slowdown can be pretty good because of the maturity of it. By the time you're coming out and the building is delivering, you know, you're in theory potentially back That's to right. a healthier, you know, economic you right. know, backdrop. Yep. Interesting to hear your commentary on Europe. I think that's a place where it does seem like we are in a 
pretty different place from an economic standpoint that we were just a year ago in terms of the number of worries that are, you know, on your plate. And um, obviously there's still war going on and that's a major wild card and something for investors to to be um, considering. On the European direct lending side, I mean, do you see more value there versus other geographies, whether it's the U.S. or um, or Asia, and um, you know, just curious about how valuations kind of compare yeah, across regions. Yeah. Asia had a moment, if you will, at least the way. In, in our, our our direct lending has a very distinct flavor to it. Um, we focus on first lien, senior secured, true middle market, meaning EBITDA between fifteen million and seventy million. Ninety percent of the deals we do fall in that category. Yep. We don't do the big deals. We put a covenant in every deal. And so ours has a very plain vanilla, conservative, boring, sleep at night, direct lending strategy. Mm-hmm. And so when I speak of direct lending, that's what I'm speaking about. There's a whole other world of direct lending out there, which we'll get into in a minute, because I think we'll have some good opportunities there mm. via the capital solutions team here, Right. Um, in which people do non-sponsored loans. They do large middle market companies. They do deals with slightly different structures, more creative structures designed to meet a particular need that a company might have that doesn't fit the more, I'll call it the more disciplined strategy that that Bearings pursues and that a number of our competitors pursue. Mm -hmm. When you ask about other opportunities, I think the US and Europe, apples for apples, I think are pretty close. I mean, I I think I like Europe because the spreads are a little wider there now. And I think that they've just, US spreads are wider than they were a year ago, but not quite as wide as they are in Europe right now. You have higher base rates in the U.S., so depending upon your home currency, you know, you might choose to invest in one or the other. Obviously, the best place to be now is European credit spreads on dollar currency, and that gives you the highest yield of all. Mm-hmm. But U.S. is good. It's just not quite as good as Europe. Uh, you know, Asia, we're not doing as, quite as many deals in Asia. We had a, There was a moment there about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. when we found a bunch of deals down there as banks were pulling back. Uh, from financing in that market. And it opened up some opportunities that we had not seen for years and years and years. Mm. But I think that the general level of activity there is a little less than it was. So while I feel, still think you can find opportunistic deals, it's harder for us at Bearings to go out and say, let's get a lot of exposure here because we're not seeing a lot right now. So. Got it. Got it. Okay. So U.S. construction lending, yep. European direct lending, uh, and then you said there was one more opportunity maybe related to the capital solutions team. Yeah, and it ties back into your big first question. Mm. So we believe and we, you know, we're we have great relationships with lots of banks and investment banks, commercial banks, and our capital solutions team in particular has been active and, and we think you're gonna see lots of opportunities to help these banks uh, selectively pair risk on their balance sheet. That can come in lots of ways and we can choose how we wanna do that. I think that you'll see some of these banks pulling back in different areas. You'll see some pulling back in real estate, some pulling back in direct lending, some pulling back in consumer lending, some all three. But either way, um, we are going to have opportunities to participate in that. And and uh, just to give you an example, we worked with a large investment slash commercial bank um, to reduce risk in a particular name. They were not selling the name. They simply had an appetite to reduce risk generally. So they were selling partial positions in a number of this different is a, risks. In a public market credit? Private credit. Private credit. Basically okay. a middle market direct loan, but yep. in a company that was bigger than we would typically do. Okay. Um, and we were able to buy that at a dollar price of 90 and, and, and an expectation that that deal probably pays out in, a, in probably a couple of years and an expected IRR on that trade of a, between 11 and 13%, depending upon when it pays out. The company, I believe it had a spread, initial spread of maybe four to 500 basis points when the deal was done. So a pretty, pretty low-risk company, you know, a good company, a company they liked. But th- these banks, whether they're large or medium-sized, are going to be 
reducing risk. And that means more than just not making new loans. Sometimes that means looking at your existing balance sheet and looking for ways creatively to reduce the risk. Mm. That can be done. This trade happened to be um, actually literally buying half the loan from them. Mm -hmm. uh, there are synthetic ways to do this. And like I said, you can do it across the different types of risk, whether it's real estate, consumer. And I think that general source of deal flow will be a significant point of focus for us this year. And I think it will provide lots of opportunities. So call it another form of direct lending, maybe, you know, and I think it's probably going to happen more in the U.S. than in Europe. I think Europe, like I said, the banking system's in better shape. You know, they don't have, I don't think they're looking at this, uh, this SVB crisis and, and thinking that they've got a lot of wood to chop as a result, whereas I think they do in the U.S. Yeah. The point you were making about, you know, working with banks to help them remove risks. I mean, I imagine that could come in many different flavors, uh, you know, that banks may be looking to reduce risk in many different parts of their businesses. So, and, and I'm also just thinking about, you know, I think Jamie Dimon put out his or put out their uh, J.P. Morgan's uh, investor letter uh, today. And he was talking about, you know, this banking crisis, you know, potentially being something that takes multiple years to play out. Um, would you expect the same in terms of, I mean, do you think there's a real long runway of, you know, potential opportunity here for alternative lenders like Bearings to come in and, and uh, you know, help banks offload risk? I, I do. Broadly speaking, that, that theme of banks becoming less central to the capital origination process and alternative lenders becoming more important, I think is, is a really important theme to discuss. We're obviously a part of here at Bearings. That's a large part of kind of that it explains you know, why we're in this nice building and mm -hmm. why we get all the opportunities we do. I think that's going to continue and I think that's good. You know, if you think about a world in which capital is allocated according to the sort of whims, if you will, of senior credit officers in a, in a dozen global banks, right? Um, it's very hard for them to know exactly where to push the accelerator and where to tap the brakes, mm. right? Across all their portfolio, no matter how hard they try, uh, because they're one actor. And what's happened over the last, say, 40 years is we've gone from these, let's call it a dozen actors that grow globally to hundreds if not thousands of actors globally, and we're probably not done yet. Mm. And so this is going to be a, another catalyst, right? This will be, you know, a milepost on that journey. The regional banks are where we're going to feel it the most. You know, the, the money center banks probably don't have a lot of risk to get rid of that they need, that they'll be forced to get rid of. But I think the regional banks are the ones that'll be really a focus of the next round. Yep. So I don't think, you know, in terms of dollars, it's, it's not going to be quite as significant, but in certain markets, it'll be really important. And I think, we talked about real estate being one of them. Um, I think direct lending is one of them. And and uh, and I think that's, I think he's exactly right. I actually started to read that, but it's very, very long. It's and a 40, it's, it's 40, like, I think 46 pages or something like that. I sat down this morning with my yeah. coffee and I got yeah. through two pages and yeah. I said, well, I'll finish it next week. Yeah, I think. apparently it's one page shorter than last year. So. <laughs> um, all right, John. Well, we co we covered a uh, you know pretty broad landscape of opportunity here uh, in this conversation, and obviously we didn't go super deep on any of these, but I, I hope it gives listeners a taste of the type of thing uh, that you and your team are looking at, but also just uh, you know some pretty current views in terms of where you're seeing you know relative value across the market today. I guess the last question, and just thinking of it from an institutional investor's perspective, you know, maybe even a wealth investor's um, perspective, as they're, you know, trying to navigate this environment in their own portfolios and, you know, private assets becoming a greater and greater part of many investors' portfolios. I mean, 
What do you think they should be looking for in terms of a manager, in terms of access to opportunities, in terms of you know finding relative value? I mean, what, what would be some of the things that you would advise that they keep an eye out for so that they are capitalizing on opportunities that are rising, like the ones we just talked about? It's a good question. I think it's really hard for the average investor mm-hmm. to do the kind of research on a manager that you'd want to do to really ascertain the quality of their relationships and the the depth of their origination capabilities. And I think to answer your question succinctly, I would say it's the quality of the relationships and the depths of the opportunities. I mean, mm. that, that's the mm. answer. Because, uh, you know, private markets are, are private, right? And so they work really well for borrowers and lenders, but the opportunity set is as good as you make it. And you've got to be partners with the right people. You've got to find people who, not, not just people that have the right risk return filter, but have one that matches yours. Risk is risk. There's low risk, mid risk, high risk. And there clearly are people who don't get it right, but there are a lot that do get it right. They just operate at different parts of the market. And as a lender, for instance, what I want to do is find whether it's a private equity firm or a sponsor in the infrastructure market or a commercial real estate sponsor. What I want to do is find a sponsor to do business with who shares a similar perspective vis-a-vis risk. And you know, and we're at bearings, you know, even when we traffic in risky markets, we're pretty, we're relatively low risk. You know, we're pretty disciplined underwriting. You know, we don't have a high tolerance for losses, even mm-hmm. if we're in trafficking and investments where we have high expected returns. It's okay if the portfolio bends a little, but we don't want it to break. But finding that investor or that that sponsor that who has a similar profile vis-a-vis risk mm-hmm. as you do. Because you'll inevitably have a problem, and when you do, you're going to have to sit down at a table and work it out. And the beauty of these markets is that it's in that collaborative process that you preserve value, whereas in the public markets, you leak value. Mm -hmm. In the private markets, you sit down with other lenders and the sponsor, and you work out a solution in which you preserve the value of the whole and make sure it's allocated appropriately between the different parties. And that's very different. If I'm a high net worth investor, I think I I would stick with brand names. Um, I would try to find the lowest fees you can. Fees have a big mm-hmm. impact on returns in private markets. Uh, in general, you find that the managers who charge the highest fees in private markets also take the most risk. Mm. There's like a one-to-one relationship <laughs> or a high, very 100% correlation okay. between yeah. those two things. So try to find the lowest fees you can. Try to find the brand names. And, 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 and maybe I'm talking my book, but I think diversifying across different asset classes is a good thing. Yeah. Right? Um, so if you can find uh, a vehicle, whether it's a, a private BDC or an interval fund or whatever structure you can find, you know, if you can find one that does a little bit of direct lending, a little bit of real estate, a little bit of infrastructure, I think you'll be better off. You'll have a lower overall risk profile for the same level of return. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's great context. And I, I like your points around risk in particular. So, you know, as, as, as we mentioned up front, I think a lot of investors are, you know, looking at the risk that they have, especially related to banks. Um, assessing that, and I think uh, you know, making sure you're working with a manager who's sort of aligned with you philosophically in terms of the appropriate amount of risk to take, et cetera, um, is really important. Well, John, this has been illuminating for me, hopefully for our listeners as well. Um, always great to hear your perspective, your very broad perspective on um, you know relative value across private markets. So thanks so much for joining. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the pleasure was mine and look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for listening to episode number five of season eight of Streaming Income. 
If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.